Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life of 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 99 through 104, Wednesday through Monday, August 22nd through the 27th, 2001, for smiley faces, i.e. bowel movements. 11.59 p.m. Wee! Guess what? Make-A-Wish called Dave up and he instantly knew who I was. His manager knows all about me. He talked to his manager about me. He was like, oh, I know Adrian. I met her at Leno and we talk online a lot. How about she comes to one of my rehearsals to hang out and enjoy a sort of show concert? The girl from Make-A-Wish said that everyone she called wants to make this happen for me. I feel so loved. Lush. He wants me. Ha ha. Giddy, giddy, giddy. I get a blood transfusion tomorrow. Blah. There's a chance that my central line might have to be taken out and a new one placed in surgically on the other side. Blah. I got a fever last night of 100.1. Highest yet. Was two minutes away from going to the hospital. I've got a new doctor and I actually like him even if he did show up three hours after he was scheduled to. Hmm. I gotta go write a thank you letter today for remembering me. Ha <laughs> ha. I have no life and I only have 300 white blood cells. Oh well, all's good in the end. Adrian's journal dated August 23rd, 2001. I am so worried about strangers coming into our home and making Adrian sick. It never occurs to me I am susceptible to germs too. The same cold Adrian caught at medieval times moves on to my body when it's finished with her. To avoid giving Adrian the cold again, I obsessively wash my hands with both antibacterial soap followed by antibacterial hand sanitizer until they are red and dry. I even consider wearing gloves when I flush her central line. What I fail to realize is the bacterium is airborne and if it wants to infect Adrian, it will find a way. That evening, Adrian complains her central line hurts. I examine it as well as change the dressing. When I remove the gauze, I see the skin around the entrance site of the pore is swollen and red, warning signs of an infection. I apply Neosporin on the area to ease her discomfort until I can ask our home health care nurse Tess about it tomorrow morning. Adrian and I know if the site doesn't improve within a few days, Dr. Marco will schedule surgery to remove the line and then reinsert it on the opposite side of her chest. I hope the Neosporin attacks the unseen germs with the same vigor Adrian has when she walks on the treadmill. The last thing she needs is another surgery. When Tess looks at the site the next day, the redness has faded to a dark pink and the swelling has decreased. She agrees it might be the beginning of a minor infection, but it seems to be improving. I blow my nose a few feet away as Tess cleans the area. 
Watching her, I see how close her face is to Adrian's chest when she flushes the lines. I asked Tess if it's plausible I infected Adrian with my cold, if the germs leaving my mouth as I exhaled attacked her skin. Tess says Adrian is vulnerable to any bacteria, especially near an open area such as the entrance of her central line. <sighs> I'm an idiot. Adrian has no immune system, and I was breathing all over her. Seeing the blanched look on my face, Tess assures me not to worry. The sight looks better. She tells me to wear a mask every time I change the dressing until my cold is gone and to continue with the Neosporin. Adrian says, thanks a lot, sissy. Breath. <laughs> Why didn't I think about it? On Thursday, Adrian and I sit in the waiting room of UCLA's pediatric clinic. Dr. Quino referred us to Dr. Finn, a pediatric oncologist. Apparently, the insurance will approve the transfer if Adrian is treated as a pediatric patient. If this meeting goes well, Adrian will start her next round of chemo at UCLA, with Dr. Finn listed as her primary oncologist, although Dr. Aquino will make the decisions regarding treatment. Another doctor, a hepatologist, will monitor Adrian's liver at all times. I already like UCLA's team approach to Adrian's care. She will have three doctors working together to figure out how to make her well again. Since her immune system is severely compromised, Adrian wears a mask, the same kind I wear when I change the dressing on her line. She shouldn't even be out in public, but the appointment was scheduled weeks ago. Because the fourth round of chemo was delayed, the timing of everything has changed. Her counts should be up by now, but they're not. Her WBC has dropped to 300 and her ANC is still zero. We sit as far away from small children as possible and hope for the best. An hour goes by, then another. The receptionist keeps apologizing. Dr. Finn is running behind today. I want to yell, but I don't. This doctor better be outstanding because this delay is ridiculous. Finally, we are sitting inside an examination room, which makes me feel safer because everything is sterile. Our cell phone rings. I forgot to turn it off. And our Make-A-Wish coordinator, Becca Goldberg, gives us the good news. Dave Navarro not only remembers Adrian, but he would also be happy to make her wish come true. Moments later, Dr. Finn walks in. Still flushed with excitement, Adrian greets him by exclaiming in a sing-song voice, Dave Navarro knows who I am. Dave Navarro knows who I am. Not missing a beat, Dr. Finn mimics her tone. Who is Dave Navarro? Adrian bursts into giggles and explains the phone call, her wish, and meeting Dave Navarro. I can't believe you don't know who he is. I watch as Dr. Finn listens attentively to Adrian. He acts as though understanding how important Dave Navarro is to Adrian is key to knowing her as an individual, not just another patient. I like him already, and we haven't even discussed her treatment yet. Adrian can't stop smiling, but she finally stops talking about Dave long enough for us to focus on why we are here. How many cases have you personally treated Dr. Finn? I ask him. About five to seven, although it's not uncommon to work with another oncologist when a child, he looks at Adrian, or a teenager has an adult form of cancer. I've been researching an investigational drug called UFT. What can you tell me about it? Do you think it's an option for Adrian? I've heard of it. I will definitely speak to Dr. Aquino about it since he will be determining the best course of treatment for Adrian. 
I've already spoken to Dr. Aquino about this issue, but it's important to me I receive all copies of Adrian's lab work and other medical records. Will that be a problem? Of course not. Just tell our receptionist Janet what you need and give her a fax number. I look at Adrian, who will later tell me Dr. Finn is her new favorite doctor ahead of Dr. Aquino and even Dr. Marco, of whom we have both become quite fond. Well then, what do we do next? Dr. Finn smiles. He sensed our silent sister communication. He passed our test. We are transferring Adrian's care to UCLA. We will speak to Children's and arrange to have another CAT scan there or here to see if there's been any progress. I would think everything will be finalized by the end of the month. Adrian and I thank Dr. Finn as he leaves. He was worth the wait, I think to myself. He gets Adrian. I replay the scene in my head. Dave Navarro knows who I am. Who is Dave Navarro? He responded to Adrian in the same enthusiastic manner she evoked without being condescending or mocking her. He must spend a lot of time with teenagers. I wish we had found him months ago, but now that we have, I'm not wasting another minute at Children's. I will tell Dr. Marco about our decision at Adrian's clinic appointment on Monday. True to their word, UCLA faxes over Dr. Fenn's clinic notes regarding our first meeting with him. The main section reads, Emma is a delightful 15-year-old who was diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma after her initial presentation with right upper quadrant pain. She is doing reasonably well. She has had significant weight loss, which makes it uncomfortable for her to sit for any length of time. She has had no jaundice, no ascites, no encephalopathy. By the report, her synthetic function of her liver has remained very good in spite of chronically elevated liver enzymes. I love how he calls Adrian delightful, and I am comforted by the words reasonably well and very good. I also feel better reading the list of things Adrian could, but does not have jaundice, abdominal fluid, and brain dysfunction. I remember how one nurse yelled at me for reading Adrian's chart at the hospital a few months ago. Funny how some healthcare providers don't realize parents gain not only knowledge from reading their children's medical records, but also, in many cases, some much-needed encouragement. We are not looking for the bad stuff. At least, I'm not. I want to find that beacon of hope amidst the medical mumbo-jumbo. As I file the clinical report, one thought leaves a footprint on my brain. Dr. Finn finds Adrian to be delightful. Email. Subject, hepatocellular carcinoma. Date, August 23, 2001. To occc at Dear NIH, are there any current clinical trials for hepatocellular carcinoma and the drug UFT? How about HCC with Tegafer alone? I've only found one trial done in the U.S. in the last five years with UFT. Can you please send me more information? Thank you. Sincerely, Andrea J. Wilson. Adrian's school counselor, Rick Carlton, and I have been emailing for several weeks, figuring out what classes she can take in the fall who will be her teachers, and how her work will be monitored. Originally, Adrian was enrolled in six courses for her sophomore year of high school, French 2, Algebra 2, Honors English 10, Honors Chemistry, Honors World History, and Advanced Dance. Since physical activity isn't possible, Rick and I have already agreed she will drop dance and make up that class later. 
Due to the lab component of chemistry, Adrian may have to take a different science course. Rick isn't certain yet which teachers can help me homeschool Adrian. I'm prepared to teach English and history if the district provides me with the materials, and Anya has offered to teach French if necessary. Adrian hasn't said much about school. I imagine the formerly dreaded math homework, her least favorite subject, will seem easy compared to cancer. Because Adrian's hemoglobin is hovering around 7.4, we go to Children's Hospital on Friday so she can receive a blood transfusion, two bags this time. I look for Dr. Marco because I would rather tell him the news today about the transfer than wait until Tuesday. I want him to be the first one to know. Since he's not around, I don't say anything. I ask a nurse to examine Adrian's central line, which is still sensitive to the touch, but looks much better. To be safe, she has a doctor prescribe a short-term antibiotic. We spend almost the entire day at the clinic with Adrian sleeping through the transfusion. I tried to nap, too, but I can't. I remember as a toddler how Adrian refused to let our mother brush her hair for an entire week until mother cut it into a short bob. Now she has no hair at all. Adrian was so active and limber, she would crawl out of her crib every night without hurting herself and sleep on the floor. Now she can't even sit comfortably, much less take dance class at school in a few weeks. An excerpt from an essay I wrote for a college application flashes through my head. With 14 years between us and the circumstances of her birth, I couldn't see how I could possibly love her. When I saw her for the first time, I couldn't believe how beautiful she was. Loving her was not a problem at all. I watch as a stranger's blood infuses Adrian's face with color, like someone putting blush on her cheeks from the inside out. I love you so much, kiddo. Maybe too much, if that's possible. Please don't leave me. That evening, I call American Home Health to speak to someone about Adrian's platelet count, which is at an all-time low of 21,000. I thought she would receive a platelet transfusion at the clinic today, since she is at an extreme risk of bleeding, but I guess her hemoglobin is a bigger concern. A nurse named Brooke assures me, although 21,000 is very low, the doctors are probably waiting to see if Adrian's body will recover on its own. If not, she should get a transfusion. At some point, our conversation goes beyond blood counts, and Brooke reveals her younger daughter had an inoperable brain tumor and passed away. I don't know how to respond except to say how sorry I am. As Brooke continues to talk about her daughter, I marvel at the warmth that emanates from her voice. She must be sad, but I can't hear it. Instead, she focuses on the years her daughter had. I want to tell John I feel good after talking to Brooke but I know he won't understand. I'm not sure I can explain my reaction. This woman, a virtual stranger, must be devastated after losing her daughter, and yet she manages to exude such positive energy. I can't imagine being her, having to carry that burden. Brooke is a wonderful person, but I hope never to share her experience. A brain tumor is different. Adrian is different. Saturday and Sunday come and go with a mix of low-grade fevers, right quadrant pain, and hard stool 
that creates a cut in Adrian's rectum. John and I write these notes down along with the 64 ounces of fluid on Saturday and 72 ounces of fluid on Sunday. We give Dilaudid for the pain and milk of magnesia for the constipation. We do not dole out Tylenol for the fevers since they remain below 100 degrees. We encourage Adrian to rest as much as possible because Monday is going to be a long day. I wake up two hours earlier than normal and give the Nupogen shot in Adrian's thigh while she's barely awake. With her legs becoming thinner each day, I will have to use her arms soon as an injection site. When I change the dressing of Adrian's central line, I find a dry scab at the opening of the port, which is still red and sensitive, but not oozing any fluid. The antibiotic seems to be working. I administer the epigen and flush Adrian's lines. She eats breakfast while I pack a bag with stuff to keep us busy throughout the day. Books, magazines, videos, CDs, CD player, and a deck of cards. We rush out the door at 7.45 a.m. 45 minutes later, after dodging through rush hour traffic, Adrian lies flat. The most painful position for her is a giant rectangular shaped plate hovers over the length of her body for a bone scan. From motion to stillness, from noise to silence, the change is abrupt, but we are used to leaving the world behind us when we walk through those hospital doors. From radiology, we go to the clinic where we run into Dr. Marco, whom we have an appointment with tomorrow. I see no reason to wait until then to tell him the news. Firing him is much harder than firing Dr. No. We didn't like Dr. No. We like Dr. Marco. We didn't leave children's before. We are leaving now. I practice what to say, but when I speak, it comes out all wrong. You know, if you had been Adrian's oncologist to begin with, maybe we wouldn't be leaving. Adrian nods. We have to go somewhere that will treat her cancer and not just look at her as a pediatric patient. Dr. Marco tells us he used to be at UCLA and explains why he came over to Children's Hospital, why he feels they are better equipped to treat Adrian, but I can see he's grasping. He cares. He doesn't want us to leave. I feel torn about our decision for one moment, but it passes like an involuntary blink. I am doing what's best for Adrian. I cannot be concerned about hurting a doctor's feelings. Thank you for everything you've done. I would appreciate it if you can make this transition as smooth as possible. His shoulders drop as he replies, of course. He says he will cancel our appointment with him for tomorrow, but we need to stay today. The lab rushed the blood test completed a few hours ago. According to Dr. Marco, Adrian's hemoglobin, now 9.6, is still too low. She needs another transfusion, only one bag this time. When I ask about her continued low platelet count, Dr. Marco makes no plans for a transfusion. I don't argue with him. There's no point now. The best news is Adrian's immune system has bounced back in time for her make-a-wish day tomorrow. With normal WBC and ANC counts, she can meet Dave Navarro again and even take off her mask for pictures. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode.
You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.